This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's ask God's direction and guidance on our time in his word this morning. Father, we're so thankful we have your word that you began to reveal yourself to the human race from the very beginning with the creation of Adam and Eve and down through the centuries, you not only revealed yourself through various uh, dreams and visions and appearances, but you also uh, inspired the writers of Scripture. You breathed your word out through them in such a way that it was guaranteed to be free from error. It accurately recorded that information which we need, and it provided a, an inerrant, infallible uh, canon of Scripture, rule or standard of Scripture for us, that by studying your word, we come to understand who you are, who we are, and how we are to live uh, for you. Father, we pray as we study today that you would help us to understand these things, that they would be a particular challenge to us, and the Holy Spirit would help us to understand the significance of application of these ideas to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And today we're going to get mostly into Colossians 1.18, building on what we began last time in verses 15 through 17. Today I'm entitling this Sufficiency, Necessity, and Authority. These three ideas are really inherent throughout this section. As I pointed out last time, and as you see on the slide, the theme of Colossians is this doctrine of the sufficiency of Christ. And that's because the point of challenge that came from the culture around them, from the those who were religious, whether their influence was from the Greek culture or from... Uh, the Jewish background, the Judea, Judaism of the Jews that were, were in the area, was the idea that Jesus is great, Jesus is nice, we're glad you have Jesus, but you really need to have these other things, whether the other things were uh, ideas from Greek philosophy or they were uh, rituals from uh, a Jewish background, the idea was that Jesus just isn't enough. Aren't you just a little bit crazy or off-center if you really think that Jesus is enough? And yet that's what Scripture emphasizes again and again, that Jesus is sufficient. 
Well, sufficient for what? And I pointed out last time that we have a problem because we often want to restrict that and narrow that to spiritual things. We talk about sufficiency, and that means that Jesus is all that we need and more to solve whatever problem it is, whatever the issue is that we face in life. Some of those issues are emotional. Some are what we call psychological. Some are relational. Some are have more to do with academics and the understanding of the world that God created. Necessity has a little different idea. Necessity is that, that idea I talked about at the beginning last time of exclusivity. Sufficiency is Jesus is enough. Exclusivity is Jesus is the only way. To put it another way, the Word of God is enough. And the Word of God is the only way. Now, once you combine those two ideas together, and we'll develop that the idea of necessity more as Paul does, especially as he gets into the second chapter, uh, we will see that these two ideas uh, have to go together in Scripture. It's not just that Jesus is enough because you may be able to get enough from something else. And if you think that happiness comes from pleasure, you can certainly get enough if you can buy enough six-packs or enough women or men or parties or drugs or whatever it is to make yourself happy if that's what you think the ultimate goal is. But Scripture says that that uh, that's not really sufficient, number one. And number two, it's not going to get you an eternal happiness or stability because that only comes God's way, and that's through Jesus Christ. But both of these ideas are then connected in this passage, and this passage really goes through most of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 under the idea of authority. And that is the only way that you know truth is through some sort of authority. And you have basically, as I've pointed out before, three options in terms, or four options in terms of authority. Uh, three of them really relate to you. You're either going to make your authority ex, uh, empiricism, and that is the knowledge that comes through uh, various uh, observations of human experience and data, or you're going to make it reason, reason alone, which is rationalism, or some form of the two combined, or mysticism. And most people really merge those three, and they have certain things that they believe to be true because you just know it's true. Uh, the other day, had a young man come over. He's, I think he's young. Uh, I think he's in his early 40s. And um, I know his folks pretty well. Yeah, 40 gets younger every year, doesn't it? Uh, I know his folks pretty well. And he has really become interested in the Word a lot in the last maybe six or seven years. He doesn't go to church here at West Houston Bible Church. He goes to another church, not a doctrinal church. He goes to a Baptist church, and I'm not picking on Baptists, just in case, you know, somebody's a, a little sensitive there. Um, but he goes to a large Baptist church in the community, and he's gone there for a long time, and he's also taken some classes at College of Biblical Studies and, and that's advanced him in his knowledge of the Word, and he's taught some Sunday school classes at his church. And he came over the other day, and, and he would just, uh, about once a year we have a little time together and talk, and he was just talking about how frustrated he is because he, he's been trying to teach a class on apologetics to, at this church. 
And apologetics basically is to be able to rationally explain why you believe what you believe. And Scripture, of course, says that you should. That's a part of the uh, many imperatives in the Scripture. We should be able to give an answer for the hope that is in us, to explain why we believe that Christianity is true. And he can't even get the folks in his Sunday school class to agree that that's something they should do. And he was asking them, said, well, why, why do you believe... Uh, why do you believe in Christ? And the answers were basically, well, makes life better. Well, that sounds sort of like a Coke or Pepsi commercial, doesn't it? It's the real thing. Um, then you have the others who say, well, because the Bible says so. Well, why do you believe the Bible's true? Because it's the Bible. So they get in a circular argument. And then there's, there's others who say, well, I don't think we have to. We just, we just believe it because, because we just know it's true. There's that warming in our heart. Well, that's one reason that so many Baptists, in fact, that's the, the Baptist denomination, Southern Baptists are the denomination, the, the one group out of which Mormons gain their largest number of converts. Again, I'm not picking on Baptists. It's not something unique to Baptists. It's unique in people in this church and others that have this soft mysticism that ultimately their criterion for truth is is some sort of inner vibration. You know, it's a form of mysticism. The Mormons call it the inner burning of the bosom. And I one time one time had, uh, I was taking a tour of Joseph Smith's house. Joseph Smith, if you don't know, is the founder of Mormonism. And I was up in Palmyra, New York, where the angel uh, Moron, uh, Moroni um, <laughs> appeared to him. Just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. And uh, uh, so this little old codger, he was a little old curmudgeon, about 78 years old, and he had been a deacon in his Baptist church in some little town down in Georgia for about 40 years, and then a Mormon missionary got hold of him, and he said, well, I just knew it was true because I just had this burning in my bosom. See, that's how a lot of folks determine truth. It's, it's basically how it makes me how it makes me feel, and that's their ultimate criterion. Uh, so is your authority your this kind of an inner sense of truth, this inner barometer, or is it your reason alone, or is it your experience or combination of the three, or is the ultimate authority the Word of God? That's the decision we all have to make a hundred times every day at least. So these are these three things are related, and we'll see this especially in our passage in verse 18 today. Uh, and that we won't get beyond that because this is such a crucial, crucial topic in the Scripture. It, aside from salvation, I think the most significant topic in all the Bible has to do with authority. Authority relates to humility. It relates to pride. It relates to obedience. It relates to every issue in life. If you don't get authority right, you're not going to get anything else right in the Christian life or in life itself. It's that foundational, and we need to understand a little bit about why that is so, and we'll see that some uh, some this morning. So last time I defined the term, sufficient means that it's enough, it's adequate, it's as much as is necessary, it's the required amount, it satisfies every need. The problem, as I pointed out last time, just I'm reviewing this. Those of you who were here last time need to hear it again so you'll eventually remember it. Those of you who weren't here last time need to hear it so you understand uh, where we're going with this series. problem we have in American Christianity, and there's hardly a person in here that's immune from 
this mistake. This is one of those things that just sort of is endemic to our culture. It's in the water we drink. Uh, we want to separate the spiritual from everything else. Uh, now, some of you recognize that you don't do that and you shouldn't do that, but let me tell you, we all do that in a lot of ways. That's the one of those trends in the cosmic system or the world system today that that we sort of picked up in the air as we were growing up that, well, that's good for our spiritual life, but I'm studying physics today. Or that's good for Sunday, but I'm studying law today. Or that's good for... Uh, Bible class, but I'm studying history today. And what we've just said is that God may be the creator of everything in the universe on Sunday, but he doesn't have anything to say about what he created in the universe on Monday through Saturday. Now, this is Paul's argument here at the very beginning of this section last time is because Jesus is the creator of everything and Jesus is God, therefore omniscient, and since he created everything, including history and English and physics and biology, that he can address all of those subjects. There's nothing within creation that's outside of his authority. So we make this mistake of separating our spiritual life from other areas of life, and so we end up trying to find solutions to all kinds of problems that are faced in our lives and in culture apart from God's word. That's not our starting point. We're going to start with economics by reading, you know, reading Marx, or we're going to start by reading uh, some other uh, economist, Adam Smith, or whoever it might be, but we're not going to start with the Bible because the Bible's not an economic textbook. It may not be an economic textbook, but the foundation for thinking about economics is still there in the Scripture. What we have to understand is that the spiritual life is really at the core of everything. Those two circles don't go like this as two separate things. The spiritual life is at the core of, uh, let me run through this slide real fast, is at the core of everything else. So that the spiritually dead person has this as... Augustine put it, a God-shaped vacuum in the soul. Um, the writer of, of Ecclesiastes talks about the fact that there is, without God, there's just this emptiness in life, and nothing in life has any meaning. So it's only when there is regeneration and there's new life and we are informed by the Word of God that that in turn begins to help us to understand all the other details in God's creation and put them in their right place and, and, uh, and uh, have a right understanding of them. So we then can understand all these different details, whether they're emotional, psychological, historical, legal, or economic. Okay, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, we studied last time. First point that Paul is making in his in his drive toward helping the Colossians and us understand sufficiency is that because Jesus is fully God, he is sufficient. He's the image of the invisible God. That means that he represents the invisible God. He is a physical representation to us of what God is. Therefore, he is everything that God is. And we know the invisible God because we see Jesus. 
The Apostle John put it a little differently. He said, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten has explained him to us. So we see God by looking at Jesus. Then he says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. The him here is Jesus. By him literally means in him. Now, that has to do with within his mentality. He has the same omniscience as God the Father. So in him, within the thinking of each member of the Trinity, was there was always a full comprehension of every aspect of creation. Now, there are distinct roles within the Godhead, but they all understood the entire plan of, of creation. A theological term I've used in the past for this is the word perichoresis. Perichoresis is a Greek term that basically refers to the fact that, that what is true of any one member of the Trinity is true of all three members of the Trinity because they are all one in terms of their unity, what the Father knows, the Son knows, what the Son knows, the Spirit knows, what the Father can do, the Son can do, the Spirit can do. But it doesn't eradicate the differences between them. Another word that is used to describe this theologically is the term circumincession. And these terms refer to just this theological idea that what is said of one person of the Trinity is said of all. It's an interpenetration. So we don't want to break the Trinity down so we emphasize the three personhood so much you end up with three gods. Uh, you don't want to emphasize the unity so much that you end up with a solitary monotheism. But you have to have a unity that's a true unity and a distinction in the persons that's a true distinction. And so perichoresis tries to help us understand this idea of the unity of the Godhead. So he is the creator, and that's what Paul is saying. Because he creates everything, there's nothing in creation that he doesn't fully and comprehensively know. He knows everything exhaustively. And then verse 17 concluded, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And this has to do with the sustaining ministry of, of uh, God the Son. He sustains the creation. Now, just as a, a principle of application here, this also relates to our understanding of the role of the individual human being to creation. We have a responsibility as Bible believers. The Bible says that the human race was set to rule over creation. Now, that's a bad word among environmentalists. Now, what I mean by environmentalists, don't ever get confused about this. What I mean by environmentalists are those people who approach man's relationship to the environment, whether it's atmospheric science and global warming or whether it has to do with pollution or whether whatever it might have anything to do with, they approach it from a non-biblical viewpoint, which means it's always going to be based on some sort of natural understanding that is grounded today in some form of Darwinistic evolution, which sets it completely over against what the Bible says. And so this is a worldview conflict. Now, last week or the week before when I was out of town and I went down to Panama, 
we began to show first couple of lessons, and I understand that they're very basic, but some people need things that are very basic, uh, a series uh, that has been done by some very astute scientists who are really bright and have published a lot of things, and I'm sending out some of their newsletters that I receive through uh, to an email so that you can see some of the other things and links that they have. And this series is called Resisting the Green Dragon. You have to remember this is made for a mass audience, and the mass audience of evangelical Christians are represented by the folks who are in that Sunday school class this young man is teaching, and they don't know worldview from schmurldview or world peace from world peace. They don't have a clue. So the first three, I understand the first three or four of these videos or lessons are, are extremely basic, especially for this congregation, but that's the way things are in the world. You all have been well-trained and taught in those particular areas. But they laid the groundwork for what they will cover in subsequent lessons, and it's important to understand that. We have a, a, an issue in understanding in the environment. The Bible says that as a Christian, Man is placed over the environment. We're giving, given a stewardship responsibility over the environment. On the other hand, what happens from environmentalism is they say that man is part and parcel of everything within the environment, and so man has the capability of absolutely destroying the environment. As a Christian... We know that we cannot absolutely destroy the environment because it is sustained by Jesus Christ. We can, though, we can really muddy the waters up, so to speak, through a lot of, uh, th through various bad decisions, just like we do in our life. We can make a lot of bad decisions and we can really mess up our life, but we're not going to lose salvation. Uh, we can make a lot of decisions that affect the environment in a negative way through pollution and other things, but we're not going to create absolutely destructive damage because everything is sustained by God and God is in control, specifically Jesus Christ is in control of sustaining the environment. So as Christians, we approach the environment from a completely different set of presuppositions. Uh, we believe that the environment is something we have, uh, we have to responsibly control and have authority over as believers. But that doesn't mean that we wring our hands and we run around trying to impose a lot, put a lot of government programs together to change something that cannot be changed or affected by any government program. We've been fighting the war on poverty, which is a much less easier problem to solve than uh, global warming, so to speak. And we haven't done any good. We just, the government's just made everything worse. So why in the world do we think that uh, we can somehow solve, uh, assuming for the sake of argument, global warming problems by government programs? Oh, the answer to that is arrogance. That has something to do with authority, doesn't it? So that's the issue in the next verse, verse 18. Paul moves from talking about the sufficiency of Christ because he's the creator of everything and this is connected to the material creation of the universe and specifically the world, to verse 18, that he is the creator and originator and sustainer of a spiritual organism called the church. And he is placed in authority over the church. So what happens in verse 18 is Paul is suddenly just bringing us down to 
this dispensation. We're not focusing on what happens before the cross. We're not focused on things that occur later. We're talking about something that is specifically related to an organism, a spiritual organism that came into existence on the day of Pentecost, approximately 33 A.D. And in uh, A.D. 33, with the... um, with the resurrection of Christ and then his ascension and then the uh, advent of God the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, on that day, this new organism is given birth to. And as we've seen in our study of Acts, that birth of the church occurs only because Jesus has been resurrected and ascended and glorified and is seated at the right hand of God the Father And so this new organism called the church comes into existence as a result of his resurrection, ascension, glorification, and session at the right hand of the Father. And so now what Paul is saying is not only do we understand that Jesus is sufficient for everything because he's the creator of the entire material, physical universe, but he is the creator of this organism, the church, and he is the head of the church. Now, we have to address this this term. This is a really important term, and it it really has uh, impact on a lot of other areas in life and in our thinking, and it's crucial that we we come to an understanding of what head means. So we're going to look at this word. It's the Greek word uh, kephale, kephale, and it literally refers to, as I have up on the screen, Literal meaning, the physical part of the body that contains the brain. It can refer to a human head or an animal head, but the literal meaning of kephale is the head. As a result of that, think about what this means in terms of of its literal meaning. The brain is located within the head. It is the brain that is the command and control center for the body. And so that idea of the authority, the command and control center, is what is then used in a symbolic way to come over for a metaphorical meaning. So it describes superiority or authority, uh, but in Greek it never describes source or origin. Now that's really important. I'm going to point out why that's important as we go through this, but for right now, just mark that down. Remember that it never has that idea of source or uh, origin. It's also used in a few passages in the scripture to refer to the chief or head cornerstone. And in that sense, it's related to something that's the uppermost part or the extremity of something. And it's used that way in several passages, specifically Mark 12, verse 10. And Acts four, uh, Acts four, verse eleven. So we see here that Jesus is the uh, head of the church. Now let's look at a couple of other ideas here uh, that we run into in our study of this of this concept of Jesus Christ being the head of the church and understanding its meaning. I want you to turn with me to First Corinthians eleven, verse eight. We're going to hit a couple of other passages, but we'll be in 1 Corinthians 11 a little bit. I want you to turn there. I don't have this on the screen. In 1 Corinthians 11, 8, and 11, 1 through 12 is a crucial passage for understanding authority and its significance from a biblical framework. But in verse 8, Paul says, 
for man is not from woman, but woman from man. Now, if you use a New American Standard, they've inserted the word origin, and that's not in the original. In the original, all you have is a Greek preposition, ek, which means from or it can indicate source, and in this case it does indicate source, but the word origin isn't in the original. It just says man, the woman is from man, uh, man is uh, from God. Uh, nor was man created, uh, I mean, verse 8, for man is not from woman, but woman from man. New King James has a pretty good literal uh, translation of the text. Now, I'm going to say this, not because I'm picking on the Bible knowledge commentary, but I know that some of you will go home and check, look, read up a little more on some of these things, and some of you like to look at the Bible knowledge commentary. And if people have Logos or some other other uh, uh, computer programs, Bible knowledge commentaries available, this was a Dallas Seminary production. I recommend it all the time. It's very good in many cases. Now, you need to understand that each of those commentaries, each of those books is written by a different professor, so the quality differs some from book to book. Uh, Dave Lowry, who's been a professor in the New Testament Greek Department of Dallas since I was a student there back in the 70s, I think I had him for Ephesians, if my memory's correct, uh, wrote the commentary on 1 Corinthians, and he's taught a course on 1 Corinthians, exegesis in 1 Corinthians for many years. And he makes a statement in there that seems to be contradictory to what I said earlier, that uh, the word under point number two, metaphor, that the, in Greek it never describes source or origin. And he has an example in there where from Herodotus where he claims that, yes, it does uh, indicate uh, source or origin. I just lost that because I'm running low on my battery. Let me find my power cord here. Okay. Recharge and keep moving. Okay, he makes a comment in Bible Knowledge Commentary that using verse 8 that this word kephale head means source, and then he quotes from um, a citation in Herodotus History um, chapter 91.2 that it relates to, and that relates to an inscription that Darius put on a stone uh, at the headwaters of the river uh, Tiaris, and he referred to it as the headwaters. Now, I'm not sure if that's a compound word or not, but certainly the word head in conjunction with waters gives it a different connotation and meaning. It's not just, it's not talking about origin. And if it is, and it, just for the sake of argument, if that is a use where head means origin, it's the only use in Greek language. But see, it's, it's restricted by the word water. So it doesn't mean origin in and of itself. It's not a standalone term, uh, that that means origin or source. And so that really creates a very poor analysis there. Uh, of course, Herodotus wrote in about five centuries before the New Testament was written. He wrote in classic Greek, not in Koine Greek, and there's no example anywhere in Koine Greek or anywhere else where the word conceivably could refer to origin. So we have to understand it in a different sense here. It's a compound word, and it's not a standalone or independent use of the word. So we're still safe and correct in our conclusion. The word kephale always refers to authority, and it does in Scripture. This is when we look at verse 18 here. We can just translate it. He is the authority 
uh, over the body, which is then defined as, as the church. So, in conclusion, in just talking about this word, we have to understand that the meaning of the metaphor is related to authority and leadership. I always like to put those two together because authority isn't just tyranny. It is leadership. Genuine authority involves leadership, real leadership. It's not just being in charge. Uh, If you're in charge, you have to lead. You're not just bossing people around. So headship, the idea of headship teaches ideas of supremacy, control, and authority. This is the idea in the metaphor. And the body receives direction from the head where the brain is located. So the brain, as the command and control center, sends out signals to the body. But it goes beyond simply leadership, as I'll show before we're done this morning. So headship primarily focuses on that idea of authority, and we see that in passages like Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, I want you to note the similarities between Ephesians 1 and what we're reading in Colossians 1. Just to pick up the context, Paul says, What is the exceeding greatness of the power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, God the Father, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, resurrection. Now we're going to see the same ideas in this section in Colossians raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then verse 21, he says, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. I want you to note that in Ephesians 1.21, Paul looks to the future that after the resurrection ascension, Jesus is placed in authority over all categories of created life, specifically over the angelic dominions. Principalities, power, might all relate to angelic dominions and ranks of authority. I I put Colossians 1.16 and 2.10 up there because we just studied last week that in verse 16 that Christ is the one who created everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. Same concept. So he created these things, but in his humanity, he becomes lower than those things. But at the ascension and when he's seated by the Father, he is in authority, back in authority, over the angelic powers, fallen angels as well as elect angels. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, we'll read, You are complete in him who is the head or the authority of all principality and power. So you see how these ideas interconnect, and Ephesians 1 helps us to understand Colossians 1 and Colossians 1, Ephesians 1 as well. Now, in verse 22, Paul says, And he put, that is God the Father, put all things under his feet, that is, under the feet of Jesus. This is an idiom for putting something under someone's authority. The word, the Greek word translated put all things is the Greek word hupotasso. 
Hupatasso means to submit or to subordinate something to something else, to put something under the authority of someone else. It's the word that is used when we, and we'll see when we get into Ephesians 5, women are to submit to the authority of their husbands. It's that same word. So this authority concept is clear here. He put, he subordinated everything under Jesus and gave him to be head over all things to the church. You can't escape the fact that for Paul, headship means authority. Jesus directs, controls, and is in charge of the church. That's what headship means. It means authority uh, over something. And the church is his body, the fullness of him who fits all in all. Now, Paul says a lot more about the church, of course, in Ephesians, and we'll get back to that uh, Eventually, but right now I want to look at another parallel passage that's important, and that's the passage in 1 Corinthians 11, where I hope you're, you still are. If not, you can go back there. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 is one of those passages people today read and they go, what does this mean? We've got women wearing head coverings because that's how some translations are, and it says things about men and long hair and all kinds of things, and so... Uh, it's a passage that is often misunderstood, and one has to do a lot of digging to understand some of the things that are said in this particular uh, chapter. But the core of this discussion, the first 12 verses, has to do with authority. Why does Paul address this thing of head coverings, and we'll understand what that is in a minute, and hair and comportment at all? It's because certain things that are that he says here are important because they they have a testimony effect to the angels in the realm of our submission to the authority of God. And the issue there always goes back to the fact that it was Satan who rebelled against the authority of God. And so whenever the issue's in authority, it also has to do with your witness as a believer and my witness as a believer to the angels that authority is the real issue. That's what was at the core of the first sin, which is Satan's rebellion against God. So I'm just going to hit some high points. If you want to go back and, and dig around in some of the more specific details of this, then you can go back and and listen to the, I think I covered this in about three lessons in the First Corinthians series. Paul says, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. By traditions, he means the teaching of the Word of God. He's not talking about human traditions. He's talking about the traditions of divine viewpoint that go from creation all the way to the present. He then goes on to say, in verse 3, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So he again uses this word head, kephale, which is so important in terms of authority. He says, I want you to know that the authority of every man is Christ. That means that men, he's talking to males, that the authority over you, going back to divine institution number one, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your control officer, and your responsibility is to be in obedience to him, which means you, more than anybody else, need to know the word of God so that you know what your responsibilities as a man are. 
I want you to know that the authority of every man is Christ. The head or the authority of woman is man. So there's a, there's a hierarchy here. Does that mean that women are less significant than men? No. It it's, has to do with role, not basic, basic humanity. Both men and women are created in the image and likeness of God. But they have different roles. Just like on a football team, you have the quarterbacks, you have running backs, you have tight ends, you have centers and guards and tackles, and not everybody can, not all the roles are interchangeable. You don't want to take the, your, your, uh, uh, your guard off the line and put him in the backfield as a running back. He's too big and heavy to do that. He, the roles are not interchangeable. Uh, you, you, as a quarterback, you cannot throw to guards or tackles or centers because they're not eligible receivers. You, there's, there's just you, we play on a team, and everybody's equal, but not everybody can do the same thing. The roles aren't interchangeable. That's the lie that came out of the feminist movement, uh, both in the 19th century and the 20th century. That's ultimately based on an evolutionary presupposition that everything just evolved and there's no distinction whatsoever. Just look around sometime. There are differences between men and women, and they're not just physical differences. God designed soul differences as well. Now, all that's gotten mucked up because of sin, but God's original intent is that there are role distinctions, and these are to be maintained even though there's sin. So says, I want you to know that the authority of every man is Christ, the authority of woman is man, and the authority of Christ is God. If you want to say that putting a person in a subordinate role to someone else in authority means that they are less equal or less valuable, then you've just created one of the most, or just made one of the most blasphemous assertions you can ever make. Because Jesus is under the authority of God. And to, if you think that being under the authority of someone makes you less equal, then you just said that Jesus is not fully God. Authority roles have nothing to do with a person's value or the, their essential uh, characteristics or who they are. It simply has to do with a role. So even Christ is under the authority of God the Father. Well, we have to understand a couple other things in this, in this section. It has to do with some translation issues. I'll just try to hit some of these things pretty uh, lightly if I can. Um, 11.4 then says, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, if you look at the context here, you have the word covered in verse 4 and uncovered in verse 5 and not covered in verse 6 covered again uh, later in verse 6, cover in verse 7. So this idea of covering is really integral to understanding this particular passage. But what we read in the Greek is the translation I have up on the screen, every man who has on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. There's not a word there in the Greek. Translators will often try to put something in there, and they make it rel- related to something like a head covering or hair. Those are ultimately going to be the two, the two issues that we have to decide. Is it talking about a physical covering uh, like a hat or a veil, or is it talking about hair? 
Now, just to give you the summary of study on this, is passages such as Ezekiel 44, verses 18 through 20, which is talking about the millennial temple and the rules and regulations for the priesthood in the millennial temple, states that priests were to neither shave their head nor let their hair grow long. Now, that's not making a comment about some of you who may be shaving your head, okay? Um, It is making a comment, though, that biblically there is something that is to be distinct about hair, that it something that it indicates. So priests weren't to shave their head or to let their hair grow long, but they were to have it trimmed. The idea was relatively short. In Leviticus 13.45, lepers were to let their hair grow long and unkempt as a sign that they were lepers. So there's something negative there with men, especially in long, unkempt hair. In Numbers 5.18, where you have a situation where a woman is accused of adultery, the the legal legislation there, that she was to let her hair down. She was to let it grow just down loose and unkempt rather than uh, tied up in a bun or somehow uh, put under control. So if what we have is either in this passage the suggestion is either the word that is left out is the word hair or the word veil. I suggest for a number of reasons that it should be hair. So we either have it saying every man who has long or let down or disheveled hair or it says every man who has a veil on his head while praying or prophesying, disgraces his head. There's no indication from the Old Testament that there is a tradition of having a veil over the head disgraces the head. In fact, within Judaism, the men have a prayer shawl, the talit, that they put over their head when they pray. So if Paul if Paul is talking in this passage about that a man can't put a talit or a veil over his head without dishonoring his head, he's making a strong assertion that this whole practice in Judaism is wrong, and the the application of that would be any time that a Jewish convert became a Christian, they would have to quit using a prayer shawl when they prayed. There's no indication historically that that was ever an issue. It would have been a major issue. You think circumcision was an issue in the early church. They would have been making an issue out of the prayer shawl too, but they never did. Why? Because, oh, maybe Paul's not talking about an external cover here. Maybe he's not talking about um, uh, wrapping the head in, in some kind of a, uh, of a prayer shawl. The high priest in the Old Testament um, also wore a head covering when he was conducting services within the temple or the tabernacle. And see, the principle that Paul is laying down here is stated as a universal principle. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered. This isn't stated like a New Testament principle. This is stated as a universal principle. Uh, Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. So we have to understand what this this, uh, covering uh, then uh, describes. And as I pointed out here, that it doesn't seem like it is an external, uh, an external uh, prayer covering. If you look down to verse uh, 5, we read, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, 
for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. Now, part of what's going on here that I don't have time to go into has to do with how men and women are to handle their hair, that hair styles have something to do with expressing your masculinity or your femininity. And the bottom line on this, in terms of the hair and is everything, the hair is the head covering. And what Paul is saying is that men need to dress and comport themselves as a male and women as a female to honor God because there are distinct roles between the two. Uh, the man dishonors God if he has a feminine hairdo. No cross-dressing. Cross-dressing was a problem in the Greek culture, too. And uh, I don't have time to go through the documentation of that. That's on the uh, previous lesson. So he's, he's, he, it's not just this, you know, antinomian that, okay, we're all, we're all saved, so there's no longer a distinction between men and women. Let's all just uh, dress however we, we, uh, uh, we want to dress. So... He's stating that every man who has long hair and a feminine style on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces the authority set over him. Verse 4 says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head with the improper hairstyle, uh, dishonors his head. That second use of head refers to his authority, that is Jesus Christ. So he's saying if you have a, if the men have a hairstyle that is feminine, then they're disgracing God's, I mean, the authority of Christ over them because they're acting like a woman. Verse 5, he says the the uh, converse, he says, but every woman who has her head uncovered with her hair down in the style of an adulteress, based on what we've seen in the passage in, um, uh, in Leviticus, uh, disgraces the authority over her, her husband, for she is acting like an accused adulteress, or she's dressing like one, she's wearing her hair like one. Uh, verse 6 then goes on to say that if a woman doesn't wear her hair, and basically a summary, if a woman doesn't wear her hair in an acceptable feminine manner, she might as well have her head shaved like an adulteress uh, because it's embarrassing for a woman to have her head uh, shaved, then if, if it is, then she should wear her hair in an acceptable manner. So the bottom line in this whole thing is authority. Verse 10, for the reason the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, that's the issue, because of the angels. It's an angelic witness that you're authority-oriented. In verse 11, he says, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. Wait a minute. That's not not the uh, male chauvinist view. See, the male chauvinist view would say, I'm independent of the woman. The woman's independent of me. She's my slave. That's Islam. That's not what, he's, what Paul says. Paul says, just, he says, the man is not independent of the woman, nor is the woman independent of the man in the Lord, but there are still role distinctions, and you have to comport yourself in the proper role distinction. Verse 12, for as a man, uh, as a woman from man, that's what happened at the garden. God took the rib out of the man, and from that he formed the woman. So the woman came from man. Even so, man also comes through woman. So there's an interplay between the roles of the sexes, and you can't use that to to assert an inappropriate authority men over over women. You can't use it to distort that. 
So verse 13, he says, judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? That is, uh, without her hair in the appropriate manner. Verse 14, he says, doesn't even nature, remember we say this in Romans, God's intended design. Doesn't God's intended design teach you that it, if a man has long hair, that is in a feminine manner? It's uh, long and short are relative terms. The real issue here is talking about uh, men wearing their hair and comporting as women and women comporting as men. Um, and then he goes on, verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a what? For a covering. So that verse defines what the covering is. It's not this external veil. It is the hair. Okay. So we see from all of this that Christ is the head. He's the authority. And he is the one who directs that to the church. And he's called the arche, the beginning. Now, the word arche as we find it there, has to do with the source or cause of something. He is the uh, one who gives gives origination to the church. Why? Because he's the firstborn from the dead. That's his resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead, and there the term firstborn has to do with first in time rather than first in priority. So as the one who rose from the dead, he gives birth to the church, that in all things he may have preeminence. Now, going back to the idea of headship, very important, just let's go to Ephesians 5, and I just want to hit a couple of high points there in Ephesians 5 to show that headship is more than just authority. Ephesians 5. As a side note, men need to pay attention. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Notice Paul didn't stop there men. Uh, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Same authority issue. Christ is the head. So women are to submit to the husband just as they submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. For the husband is the head of the wife. That's authority. As also Christ is the head of the church. Authority. And he is the savior of the body. Now that brings in the second idea. It's not just being the boss. It's true leadership. The true leadership has to do with how it functioned for Christ as going to the cross to die on the cross for the sins of the world. Therefore, Paul goes on to say in verse 24, just as the church is subject to Christ, that's the word hupotasso, same word we had back in the first chapter that all things were brought in submission to Christ, same word we have in uh, 522, wives, hupotasso, or submit to your husbands. Therefore, the church is to hupotasso Christ, is to be submitted, submissive to Christ. So let their wives be submissive to their own husbands in everything. Ladies, it's really tough. The great barometer of your submission to the authority of Christ is how you submit to your husband. I didn't say that. Paul said it. That's your barometer. You want to know how submissive you are to Christ? To see how submissive you are to your husband. That's your barometer. That's the real tell right there. Then Paul says, husbands love your wives. But the standard is Jesus. You guys don't get away with anything. It's harder. Wives, you don't believe this. You think, i got to submit to him? Let me tell you, he's got to love you like Jesus loves him. 
And he's not going to admit how hard that is because he knows how hard it would be it is for Jesus to love him. But that's how he's supposed to love you. So he's got a much more difficult responsibility here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. See, that's part of that headship authority issue with Jesus as the head of the church because the brain, not, the brain is the command and control center, but what did, what's the role of the brain to the body? Look at verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. See, the head tells the body what to do. The head is concerned, the brain is concerned about the health and welfare of the body. Because if the body goes, the brain's gone. So part of headship is love and nourishment to care for the body. That's part of what that responsibility is, which is what Paul's bringing out here in this passage. That he, verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. See, part of that headship responsibility is to nourish and cherish. Authority without love is tyranny. Love without authority is just permissiveness and mushy sentimentality. You have to have authority, but true biblical authority functions with true biblical love as exemplified by our salvation, by the love that God has for the church. Revelation 1.5 states, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, resurrection, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, his authority, to him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Authority is related to love. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study uh, through this passage and these important concepts of sufficiency, necessity, and authority, especially authority because it's so hard for us in sin, because the basic orientation of sin is rebellion. It is to reject your authority and to assert our own authority. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand uh, especially the authority relationships within marriage, but the authority relationship we have as individual believers to submit to your authority, and only as we submit to your authority can we grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for those or anyone who may be here this morning who's never uh, trusted in Christ as Savior, unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. He had your sins in mind, and he paid that penalty on the cross so that you could have eternal life. The issue isn't submission or anything else right now. The issue is just believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And at that instant, you have eternal life, which can never, ever be taken from you. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.